0: Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Today we are talking about creation. Welcome to the Doctrine Four Doxology podcast. If you ever want to email me, you can do so. Doctrine4, that's the number 4, doxology at gmail.com or I'm on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. Now I just read Hebrews eleven three, and that is part of the Hall of Faith. So that whole chapter, uh, this this phrase by faith, uh, so is repeated over and over again. And so by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. What we know about creation as Christians, we it is by faith. It is by faith in the revelation in, in the truth from God's word. So God has given us the Bible, and that is God's revelation of how the universe came into being. So we start as we approach creation. How how did all this happen? Uh, from the Christian perspective, it is first off by faith, and, and it is it is a revelatory type of knowledge. That's how we know. It's not our own logic, it's not our own experience. It is the revelation of God to us. This is how the world came into being. And so for a Christian, that's where I start. So, as we approach the the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, I think it's important that we the under, we understand how we approach this text, okay? So, a lot of people will will demand of Genesis 1 and 2 that it read like a scientific textbook, but it is not a scientific textbook, okay? It it does not, and it it also does not give you every single detail that maybe you'd want to have, okay? Just as the Gospels are not a detailed account of everything Jesus did— uh it it's not the gospels are not a court report of every single event okay the gospels give us a narrative true historical narrative about Jesus life but the the ultimate purpose of the gospel writers is not to write a historical narrative it is to show you who Jesus Christ is in John 20 Verse 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it is, it is not less than historical, okay? It is a historical account, but the purpose is theological, Okay, in the same way, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 is historical narrative, but its ultimate purpose is not just history. And and, and it's not a, it's not a scientific record, okay? It is theological. So we learn about the creator of all things. Also, the creation narrative is not just some standalone text in the Bible. It is alluded to over and over again throughout scripture as Historical fact, okay, so although we do not have all the scientific answers we may want, it is not less than historically true, okay Its historical truth is on the surface level, and its theological truth must also be grasped as well all right now along those lines, some people will say, well genesis one and two it's it's just poetry it's it's just poetic form of of how creation came into being. Well, I would say to someone ignorant of Hebrew poetry, that may seem like a, a good way of describing it, okay? But it, Genesis is not poetic in any way in as far as Hebrew poetry, all right? It is a straightforward—it's like as straightforward as possible, the most simple language— Historical narrative. Okay, now one distinctive feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Okay, and this involves the repetition of related thoughts. Let me give you some examples of this parallelism. And and as I was looking, you know, researching this, it is again one of the key features. It is it, you can say it's always present in some form in Hebrew poetry. Okay, so uh, let me give you some examples. We're in Proverbs chapter 22, and there's three different types of parallelism in the first three verses of Proverbs 22. So the first one is synonymous parallelism, and this is when the second line restates the first in slightly different terms, okay? So Proverbs 22, one, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches okay that's the first line second line because this is synonymous parallelism is going to restate that okay the second line is and favor is better than silver or gold a good name is to be chosen gr- rather than great riches and favor is better than silver and gold the the next example of parallelism is climactic parallelism and this is when the second line completes the thought of the first line Proverbs 22, 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Okay? And then the last example I'll give you is antithetical parallelism. And this is when the second line expresses the same thought as the first line, but it does so in negative terms. So you basically, you're going to have a positive statement and then a negative statement, but essentially, they're saying the same thing. Okay. So, Proverbs 22.3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it, okay? So, there are other ways to classify this parallelism in in Hebrew poetry, but you get the picture, okay? And this is just simply not the structure of of the creation account. However, there is one place in Genesis 2 where we do have a poetic statement. It's Genesis two twenty three. This is when Adam first sees Eve. He says, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You see the parallelism there? And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right. So that's that kind of deals with the argument that well Genesis 1 and 2 is just poet it's just poetry, okay? The th- next thing I want to talk about is this idea that it's just a myth. It's a creation myth. Now there are different ways of classifying myths and and many people will define a myth in different different ways. And so I think if you're having a serious discussion with someone that that says creation uh, or the Genesis account is a myth, have them define exactly what they mean by myth, okay? Because there's lots of different ways that people think about that. But one thing that, in general, I think is pretty common, no matter what form of your definition of myth the typical consensus I think is that if it's if something is mythical then it's not thought to be true. And if something is true it is not thought to be mythical, okay? And so obviously as a Christian I'm saying no Genesis 1 and 2 is a true historical account, okay? It's it's not a myth, it's not a, a creation myth, all right? Along these lines Victor Hamilton uh, in his commentary on the book of Genesis Says this If one is told that the flood of Noah's day is a myth or that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a myth, the hearer will assume that what is meant is that these two events are really fictitious narratives, invented stories. The speaker of the above statements may qualify his position by saying that Noah's flood or Jesus' resurrection is true theologically, but not true historically. In that sense, he believes these stories are myths. All right. And so what I'm saying is yes, Genesis 1 and 2 is true theologically, but it is also true historically. And and so that's why I I refuse to call it a myth. Now, there are many other pagan cultures which have a story of creation, a creation myth. But they are clearly myth, all right? Uh, This is is God's ripping open other gods, and from that creation happens and different things like that. Similarities may exist between those creation myths and the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. There there may be allusions to, to different things there. But the difference is that while both are trying to make a theological point in some way the Bible is clearly making a historical point as well. Myths are not historical, but the Bible shows us over and over again that God is entering into history. This is most clearly seen in Jesus Christ, John one fourteen, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus really lived, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they all lived in time, that they are not mythical figures. And as Christians, we want to hold the same view of the Bible as Jesus held. Jesus did not view creation as a myth, but as historical fact. So in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, Jesus has asked about marriage and divorce, and he answered, "'Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?' and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So there's a a quotation from Jesus from Genesis 1 and also Genesis 2 right there together and he is using that as a historical argument for his point. So in a parallel passage in Mark's gospel we get another insight into Jesus view of creation in Mark 10:6 again this is in This is the same story, basically, in Mark's account. And Jesus says this, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So notice there, from the beginning of creation. And this would be very antagonistic to the idea of Adam and Eve evolving over millions or billions of years. There were male and female humans from the beginning of creation, according to Jesus Christ. All right, so more on this later when we talk about evolution. Now, a doctrinal statement, if you will, or or a definition of biblical creation, I think a, a good one here, and this is listed in the, the chapter, the corresponding chapter by Martin Lloyd-Jones, but it's Louis Burkoff's definition of creation from systemat- his systematic theology book. And he says, quote, "...the free act of God, whereby he according to His sovereign will and for His own glory, in the beginning brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe, without the use of pre-existent material, and thus gave it an existence, distinct from His own and yet always dependent on Him. All right. Now, we've already discussed many of the ideas in the early part of this doctrinal statement in previous episodes of the podcast. And so God yes, God is is free to do as he chooses. He uh, this is according to his sovereign will and for his own glory. And so we've we've already talked about those things. The first major topic I want to talk about is creation without the use of pre-existent material or also referred to as creation ex nihilo. Okay? Ex nihilo is a Latin phrase and it means out of nothing. So God created things, the whole universe out of nothing. Romans 4:17 says as it is written I have made you the father of many nations. There it's talking about Abraham in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So there is, this is probably the key verse in why Christians believe in the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. God is said to call into existence the things that do not exist. I love this line from John Frame. It's in his Systematic theology book on page 22. He says, talking about creation, of course, he says, the Lord sovereignly issues commands in Genesis 1, and even things that do not exist obey him by springing into being. So I thought that was a a clever way of of putting it. Things that do not exist obey God when he speaks. All right. Now, this doctrine of creation ex nihilo, it rejects two different things, okay? Um, First off, it rejects this idea that matter is eternal, okay? Colossians one sixteen and 17 supports this as well. It says, "...for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things." and in him all things hold together. So, with the idea that that God is creating uh without pre-existent material, he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Also in Colossians 1 we we have that he is before all things. Then we we reject this idea that matter is eternal. God is not simply reorganizing eternal matter. No, he is creating and then also uh, organizing and 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 doing things with the material that he has created, but it first had to be created. It w- it was not pre-existent, and matter is not eternal. So creation ex nihilo rejects that idea. It also rejects the idea that creation is simply this emanation of God's essence. Okay, and this is where we get this idea of pantheism that that God's being just sort of multiplied itself, and so that God is actually the trees and the water and the the animals and everything is God, right? That's what pantheism means. Pan means all, and theism comes from theos, meaning God. All is God. Everything is God. In pantheism, idolatry is impossible, because everything that you worship is actually just an emanation of God's essence, okay, but the Bible completely rejects this idea. So in Romans 1, 24 and twenty five says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever, Amen. So it it's very clear here that there is a distinction, a major distinction biblically between creature and the creator, okay? So creation is not simply an emanation of God's essence. God is separate from his creation, all right? Also, creation is completely dependent on God. In the final part of Berkhoff's statement that I read earlier. It says this, let me just remind you what it said. It says, and thus gave it an existence distinct from his own and yet always dependent on him. Okay. So this gets back to the idea of the aseity of God. Ase is is Latin meaning out of self or from oneself. So the aseity of God, a simple way of, of describing that doctrine is that God is not dependent on us or or anything for anything, okay? God is not dependent on anything. He is he is ase. He is from His self, okay? And we are dependent on God for everything. Acts 17, 28 says, "...for in Him we live and move and have our being." And Romans 11:36 for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen so as as created beings and all of creation the entire universe is constantly dependent own God. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about God's providence. But God did not just simply create. Um, the The classic example is like a watchmaker who w- makes a watch, winds it up, and then just lets it run out. Right? No, God is actively upholding His creation. All right. Now, the the next little question I'll ask is: Which person of the Trinity is responsible for creation? And so. I'll just give you a few seconds there. Actually, it's just a trick question, all right? So creation is the act of the triune God. All three persons of the Trinity are are given credit somewhere in the Bible for creation. And so let's talk about that a little bit. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this, "'Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord.'" Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here you have one God and one Lord. So one God, the Father, and then one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now some people will use this verse and try to say, see there, there's only one God. So Jesus is not God. Uh, But what is actually happening here in this verse is the Apostle Paul is expanding the Shema. The Hebrew Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there you have Lord and God together. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, here Paul is saying there's only one God, the Father, okay, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So if you come to this verse and you say, see there, Jesus is not God because there's only one God, and that's the Father. Well, if you're going to try to make that argument, then you also have to say that The Father is not Lord, because there's only one Lord, according to this verse, and that's Jesus Christ, okay? So this verse does not do anything to mess up the doctrine of the the Trinity. Anyway, um, both are here in this one verse responsible for creation in some aspect. Also, as far as the Son and creation, we have in John 1, 3, this is talking about the Word, the the Son, says, All things were made... Through him and without him was not anything made that was made. All right. And then I've already read Colossians 1 where it talks about Jesus creating all things. Okay. Uh, Now, the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. Certainly in the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Job 33, 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Okay, Burkoff about this, uh, the, this idea of the Trinity in creation, he says, The work was not divided among the three persons, but the whole work, though, from different aspects, is ascribed to each one of the persons. All things are at once out of the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, this same truth, we, we have the Trinity in creation. We also have the Trinity in the new creation, the, the redemptive work, our salvation, okay? And so if you're a Christian, the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, and the Holy Spirit seals you. All right? The Father planned, the Son executed, and the Holy Spirit applies. The Father is for us, the Son is with us, and the Holy Spirit is in us, okay? And so we have the, the Trinity working both in creation and redemption. Now as we look at the creation account and I'm not going to walk through every single day, uh this is this is more of an overview. Now in previous episodes on this podcast I've I've spent a lot of time in Genesis and so that whole series It starts with the word beginnings, so uh, beginnings, one, two, three, four, I forget how many episodes it it, it is, but um, the first few are more on like uh, worldview-type things, and then it gets into specifics of the different days of creation and things like that. So see those episodes if you want more information on that. But when we look at the days of creation, there is a, a basic pattern that I want to point out, okay? When you look at the first three days of creation, the first thing that God seems to be doing is He is separating things, okay? He's He separates light from dark, heaven from, from earth, okay, and then the seas from dry land. So God separates, and that can be seen in days one through three, And then days four, five, and six, God is going to fill or complete those areas, that those things that he has separated, okay? So he fills the day and night with the sun, moon, and stars. He fills the sky above with the birds and the ocean beneath with fish, and then he fills the land with animals and mankind, okay? So God separates and fills, just kind of a a very basic pattern that we can see, and we see this pattern repeated Throughout Scripture, so just a few examples: God separates Noah and his family from the rest of the world; that He then fills the earth with Noah's descendants. God separates Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans; He calls him out from his own people and his own land, and says, "Go to this land that I've promised you and your descendants." So He He separates Abram, and then He fills Abraham by making him a father of many nations. God separated the nation of Israel from all the other nations, okay? They were they were separate. He gave them certain laws to keep to 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 separate them from the rest of the pagan cultures. It says, "No matter what they do, you serve me. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt." And there were blessings for the nation of Israel as long as they remained separate to God. Now, that there certainly is room for people who want to come in to the nation of Israel and worship the Israel's God, okay? That we see this with Ruth. Ruth says, "Your people are now my people and your God is my God." And she's part of the the nation of Israel. We see her in the in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, okay? And so you can unite yourselves with the with the nation of Israel and and serve God in in the Old Testament we see that. But it was the nation of Israel's responsibility to stay separate. They were not to go intermarry and and start do and and be a part of other pagan nations. Okay, they were to stay uh, within themselves. Okay, and and not go off and and worship the uh, uh, idols and things like that. Okay, so as long as Israel obeyed that, and stayed separate, there was blessing for them of fruitfulness, okay? Deuteronomy 28, one it says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And then verse 4, so following up on, on these, this is a promise here, the, the promise of blessings. Verse 4 says, Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Okay? So if you will obey the Lord your God, worship Him only, then you will be fruitful in everything you do, in children, in the in your gardens, in your livestock. Okay? All of this will be fruitful. God will fill you. Okay? And then lastly, as Christians, God separates us. He calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He separates us from the world. A basic definition of holy is to be separate, and then we are filled with the Holy Spirit who works in us to sanctify us. Also, just if you think about the true church, the true people of God, he separates them from the world, and he's constantly filling that with more and more people. Now, this next section, I just want to basically make a recommendation for you. So I I don't plan to get into uh, this argument about the age of the universe and, and the age of the earth, okay? Um, a really good resource for, for some of this information is Dr. Jason Lyle. And he's and Lyle is spelled L I S L E. Dr. Jason Lyle, he has a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Colorado in Boulder, and and he's a Christian. He's part of the Answers in Genesis team, so he he uh, has written some articles and things like that. That's also a great resource too. Answers in Genesis. Um, so a lot of your your age of the universe, age of the Earth type questions, where you have uh, evolutionists saying we know for certain that the Earth is thirteen eight billion years or whatever. Um, it, these Dr. Jason Lyle and and Answers in Genesis address a lot of those uh those things so i'll just refer you to that and also on previous episodes that i've done now with evolution um the problem there there's two basic problems with evolution uh one of them is how do you get something out of nothing okay so so some some evolutionists will say well matter is eternal and then it you know spontaneously started Interacting with one another, and that's how we have the universe today uh, but if you with their calculations that the the universe is thirteen point eight billion years old, it all comes back down to this big bang event okay and so how do you get something from nothing well the 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 most common Way that I've heard it defended is actually they just redefine what nothing is. Nothing is actually just really, really super tiny virtual particles, okay? And then they—that's—that's that's where we get everything from. So, so everybody knows, even a kindergartner knows what nothing means. Um, so they just have to kind of redefine nothing. All right. Um, so that's that's one problem, and and so this is where uh, I think some Christians, professing Christians who want to have a foot in the scientific camp and affirm evolution, okay, but also want to be a Christian, they will adopt this idea of theistic evolution. That, okay, a big problem with evolution is how do you get something from nothing? Well, what if God made the something and then... This process of evolution began, so they you know in their minds, that seems to explain everything uh, the The major problem with theistic evolution is that biblically, the reason we have death is because of the sin of Adam and Eve, so it, in evolution, in order to finally get to human beings, there's a lot of death that has to happen before you ever get to Adam and Eve. And so I think that's a a major problem and I, and I just reject the idea that that a Christian should be holding this view of theistic evolution. I think the Bible um just clearly just rejects the idea of of evolution. Now when I say evolution I mean macroevolution and the the key factor there is that Things in macroevolution, you have a a kind of thing that eventually becomes a whole different kind of thing. Okay, and so when we when we read in the Bible that everything was created according to its kind, and so again, I think this is a biblical rejection of the idea of evolution. Genesis one twelve: the earth brought forth vegetation, plant-shielding seed according to their own. Kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. In Genesis one twenty one, uh, we have the waters are swarming with creatures according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Genesis one twenty four and twenty five, you can see that phrase over and over again, according to their kinds. So there's these categories of fish and birds and plants and trees and and land animals and humans and they each stay within their kind. And so I, I think that the Bible rejects the idea of macro evolution. All right? Now, uh, a few other things that I just want to mention, and again, I'm just basically going to refer you to to previous episodes on this podcast. Um, I would say that—so so my view of creation is literal six days of creation. I'm a young earth person person, okay, so I don't believe that the earth is billions of years old, that sort of thing. Uh, I would say if there's one view that that I do not hold, but that I am most sympathetic towards, it would be the gap theory, okay? And this is also sometimes called the ruin reconstruction theory, and it is this idea that there's this big gap of time between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. So God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Stop, gap, okay? And during that time, there's this long period of time. We don't know how how long, but this is where Satan rebelled, and then God basically cursed or, or punished that initial creation, all right? And so we have all the fossil layers and all this stuff, and then eventually that was left without form and void, and so that's where you get to Genesis 1-2. So that's the gap theory, that there's this big gap of time between between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Again, I have a whole episode on the gap theory, and so I do not hold to that view, but I think that is um I, I think it, it it's basically assuming a lot that's not taught in scripture it's just kind of placing some things in there um and so but but I can I can see there there's I can see how people uh trying to be faithful to the bible would would hold that view all right my key question for someone who holds the gap theory is what is the reason that you hold that is it because you're trying to find a way to get the old universe in in the Bible, okay if you're saying well, the scientific consensus is this, so now we have to go find a way to to make the universe older than what the Bible seems to make it on the surface level if you're just trying to to shove science uh, the the current scientific consensus into the Bible, then I reject that, but if you're saying no, I really think that this is what the Bible is teaching, then I'm sympathetic to that view. Okay. Um now, so that's the gap theory. Uh another one to try to, you know, explain the age of the universe and try to get the the universe to be older than what the Bible reads on the surface level is the day age theory. Um sometimes this this verse uh, one day to the Lord is as a thousand years is is quoted there. Well, that still only gets you 6000 more years um and so you you you're still off of you know several billion um but this the day age theory that that it's actually these long gaps of time i don't think that um you can get that from the bible but again my main question would be do you do you believe that because you think this is what the bible truly teaches or are you just trying to shove the current scientific consensus into the bible okay that that would be my main question for people holding that view. And then my view of creation is that it is six literal days of creation. A, a few just basic points of evidence and again go go listen to previous episodes, but you have this repetition of there was evening and there was morning. And so this implies a, a day as as we know it and that has an evening and a morning. And this is listed for all six days of creation. There was evening and morning the first day, the second day, third day, all the way all the way through. And then I think the strongest piece of evidence, the probably the strongest reason that I hold to a literal six days of creation is, for, is found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and this is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, okay? It says, "'Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God.'" On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so here we have in six day we have six days, you shall labor, and also for in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. And so the biblical argument for the reason that the Israelites were to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy is because that's what God did in creation, okay? And so they were not supposed to rest for possibly millions or billions of years. They were supposed to rest for an evening and a morning, okay? And so uh, so anyway, that's my, that, my argument for six literal days of creation. Now, in in closing here, God not only created ex nihilo, but he now sustains his creation. He did not wind it up and let it go. He is imminent. He is present and actively working. And this is God's providence. And that's what we will talk about next week, God's providence in his creation. Okay? Now, in these verses that I'm that I'm getting ready to read Psalm 104 it's a long longer passage Psalm 104 1 through 15 we read of this transition from God's creation. Early on, it's going to talk about God's creation. And then towards the end, it starts to shift into God's providence. And so I thought this was a, a wonderful text to end on. Uh, we learned today about some of the doctrines of creation. And here in this Psalm 104, uh, we have a bit of doxology. So here it is, Psalm 104, verses 1 through 15. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent he lays the beam of his chambers on the waters he makes the clouds his chariot he rides on the wings of the wind he makes his messengers winds his ministers a flaming fire he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved you covered it with the deep as with a garment the waters stood above the mountains At your rebuke they fled, at the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches." From your lofty abode you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart.